Today's reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. It will be found on page 1066 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, to put it not too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I forgive it in the sight of Christ for your sake. Let us pray. God of grace, as we give some attention to these words now, we invite you to work powerfully through them in our lives, even though we come from all sorts of different places. Uh, The truth is we are more broken than we care to admit to anyone around us, and that's how we're all similar. But your grace moves towards that brokenness. And that's what we look for now. God, I pray that through in, this, in the midst of this sermon series on reconciliation, I pray that you would uh, see all the broken relationships that we are in and see all the roadblocks and the grudges and the grief and the stuff that we feel powerless to overcome or we don't want to overcome. I pray that you bring about stories in this church of reconciliation so that we can celebrate another way that relationships go, that we can celebrate the grace that gobbles up the pride and the forgiveness that overcomes the offenses we want to take to the grave. Fill us with that grace and that forgiveness now. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We are not inherently forgiving and reconciling. Do you believe that that's true about you? You are not inherently a person to immediately pursue forgiveness, reconciliation. Um, I think this story um, shows it in one way. This is um, it's a news story I came across months ago. Tattoo artist Ryan Fitzgerald from Dayton, Ohio found out that his girlfriend, uh, Rossi Brovent, had cheated with a longtime friend of his. Instead of confronting her about it, he acted like everything was normal and hatched a plan for revenge. <clears throat> Tattoo artist. Okay. Rossi Brovent claims that her boyfriend uh, was supposed to tattoo a scene from Narnia on her back, but instead tattooed a pile of stuff with flies buzzing around it. Um, You can see the picture online if you want. Originally, Rossi tried to have Ryan charged with assault, but the ingenious tattoo artist had covered his bases by plying Rossi with wine and tequila shots and getting her to sign a consent form that stated the design was at the artist's discretion. Now, I think that's just a story we can relate to. I think that's a story we read that and we go, yeah, that's, I can see that happening. I can believe that. 
Problem is, I looked it up today, and it's not true. So rather than throw it out and have nothing to start the sermon, I thought, <laughs> I'll just use it and then tell you at the end that it's not a true story. So someone, someone fact-checked it. These people don't exist um, in Dayton, Ohio, and this never happened. But it could. I think we, you know, it feels like that could happen, right? And if you read the Bible, actually, a lot of Old Testament stories you find scheming just like this, even more bizarre. So we've got it in us, I think. Now, this series that we're dealing with is about reconciliation in relationships. And we're going to go through all different glimpses of it. And last week, we really laid some foundation pieces. So if you were here, you caught how the Jacob and Esau story gave us this, this sense of foundation of reconciliation. There's a primary reconciliation us and God, and there's a secondary kind of reconciliation with us and others. And what we do is we walk around with a really a favor deficit. We're all looking for favor, looking for validation, looking for affirmation and belonging. And we have a deficit of it, and we go to these relationships on the secondary level to try to find it, and that's a weight and a burden that if you put that on a relationship, it'll crush it. Because no one can fill that deep need that you have for validation. No relationship can. That's what I tell people when I'm, uh, when I'm counseling people to get married, that that's, that's sort of a core issue of marriage to figure out, is that you can't put that burden on the marriage, that you need to validate me completely as a person. In that story last week, we saw that God initiates this embrace that we need to experience, that he comes to us with this kind of full-orbed embrace, and he has decided that even though we're like people running away who've been grabbing and grabbing and grabbing, he unleashes grace to us. So that now if we, now we know he has come towards us and given us that favor that we're longing for. He's restored us. He's given us all the validation and affirmation we need. That's the cross of Jesus. That's the gospel. Now that we have that, we can look around and stop grabbing for favor and affirmation and validation in relationships. And we can actually give affirmation and validation and our relationships aren't always like a crucible for our identity that was the groundwork we laid last week and so when christians and when christian communities start to experience this and apply this that this is now the new baseline and foundation for life they start to ask questions we start to ask questions about particular relationships and you start to, it starts to be common and necessary you sh- you should ask these questions of how does the reconciliation that god has has brought to me how does that need to bear upon this relationship right here, right now? How, do I, how is it incumbent upon me after experiencing that kind of favor and grace from God now in this relationship where there's discord, where there's trouble, to apply the reconciliation that God has embraced me with, the grace that God has embraced me with? And in the New Testament, as we read some of it, you see there's a lot of, early Christian communities who have experienced this embrace of God, this favor of God. And so you see them troubleshooting and and trying to figure out and trying to apply that reconciliation and that forgiveness to relationships that they're in. And you see that in several places in the New Testament where this main issue is is, is being worked out. There's a problem, there's a grievance, there's an offense, there's an offender and an offended, there's a squabble, whatever it is. And, And pastorally speaking, the person who's writing or leading the community is trying to apply that, that forgiveness and reconciliation on the foundational level to the relationship. So in this passage today, that's what we have going on. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 11. And we see really some, some of like the mechanics of how you do this, how you apply 
God's reconciliation to relationships that you're in. And we see three parts that come out of the mechanics. There's the grievance, there's the comfort, and there's the demonic. Grievance, the comfort, and the demonic. And um, I know you're excited about that last one, but I'm going to make you sit through the commercials before we get to it. You get through the first two here. The grievance, the comfort, and the demonic. First of all, the grievance, you notice that as this passage starts, that in, in verses 5 and 6, it's very clear that there's been an offense, that we're, we're all talking about it, it's out in the open, and things have been done. It's been dealt with in a certain way. And it's even talked about um, in verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him, we're not sure what this is all about, but it's on someone, by the majority is sufficient. So, in order to get to genuine reconciliation and this full-orbed, beautiful kind of reconciliation that we saw last week and that the Bible believes in, you have to deal with the grievance. It has to be acknowledged and we have to get it out in the open. And some of you are going to say, you're going to hear that and you're going to see these verses 5 and 6 and you're going to see, say, see, this is exactly why I don't want to be a Christian. This is exactly why I can't be around Christian people. Because it seems like they're just, I mean, it seems like what's being described here is just a bunch of whistle-blowing people who go around pointing out the rule breakers and saying, see, see, and what is this about the punishment inflicted? What is this all about? Sounds awful. Sounds atrocious. That's not me. I'm, I'm tolerant, right? We say, I'm tolerant. I'm kind. I'm non-judgmental. Uh, you, you may be all those things, and I hope that you are all those things. What, what this passage brings out on this particular point is that that doesn't necessarily mean that you're forgiving, that you can be as tolerant, you can have a full tank of tolerance, of kindness, of non-judgmentalism, which are things we all value, and that still in itself won't be enough to make you a forgiving person. It won't be forgiveness that's coming out of those things. It's different you might actually be hanging onto those so tightly and thinking that's where it's at, but it's, it's second rate. And you're missing out on a, a deep level of joy that you can have if you become a reconciler. There's a power of being a reconciler that you're missing out on. See, Christians are, Christians are, are not going after uh, acknowledging a grievance here or acknowledging a sin there because they're rule-obsessed. It's because... We're grace-obsessed. And we know, we think, this is all, this whole thing that has changed my life is about forgiveness and reconciliation. And I'm going to get that through this, in this problem here, through the grief. Not by bracketing it off and setting it aside and pretending it's not there. Through the grief. It's a difference between coexistence, which is a, another thing we value, right? You see the bumper stickers? Coexistence. Coexistence is second rate to reconciliation. Coexistence can't touch reconciliation. It's a higher standard. It's a deeper spiritual way of life. That's only possible if you're willing to elevate and just see and just deal with the grievance itself. So Christians learn the normalcy of, of hearing someone say or of saying themselves, I'm sorry. What I did is wrong. What do, you know, we prefer saying maybe my bad or I apologize or something a little more second rate. Christians hold out and say, I'm sorry, what I did is wrong, I hurt you. Or even sometimes, what you did to
to me is hurtful or was hurtful. But with a Christian, there's always a sense of, but I'm not done with you. I'm saying this not because I'm done with you, but because I believe in the power of forgiveness. I think what it comes down to, and then we'll move on to the, the comfort, what the, you know, this thing of acknowledging the grievance, what it comes down to is that Christians aren't terrified about the end result of acknowledging the grievance. Christians aren't terrified with the end result of acknowledging sin. That's what we do in confession. That's why we, in, in worship, why you'll say those words together in the service, because you know that the end result of getting this out is not whistleblowing, feeling terrible about yourself, you know, wanting everyone to mope around because we're all sinners. No, the end result of it is not scary at all. We're not terrified about the end result. We know it's all leading towards grace and reconciliation. And that's true in our relationships as well. So you've got, in the mechanics of reconciliation, you've got the grievance, but you've also got the comfort. Um, in, in epistles, this is called an epistle. It's an early New Testament, early church letter. There's often a theme or two or three or four that kind of get woven in at different points. And so when we read in verse 2, in verse 2, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, sorry. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That word comfort uh, comes right back to chapter 1 where it was developed further. In a Really it was the first thing that came up in this letter. And it was sort of established like a foundation. And this is what it says in verse 3 of the whole letter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. It's a very important foundation. For why Paul can say then, the Apostle Paul as he writes this, then he can say in chapter 2, now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. And of course, when we get all this language in, in, in the first chapter about comfort, it's all tying back to what Jesus has done. In the New Testament and in the lives and community of Christians, the offended can become the comforter. The grieved, by a grievance, that person can become the reconciler, the forgiver. So think about in the Bible, um, Christians know that, and think about in the Bible, the worst offense, the worst grievance that someone did to God in all of the Bible. Can anybody think of anything? What would you think of? In in the Bible, anywhere, something that's like the worst possible thing that was done against God by humanity. Judas? Idols? So, wow, we've got, there's our next sermon series, that list right there. Oh my goodness. Yeah, no, it's good. Very good. Wow. I'm kind of, you never know what you're going to get when you ask those questions. Yeah. Where my mind went, and maybe because I'm weird. Um, so well, I bring that up because, in a sense, all of those things point to this. All of them point to where we find in the New Testament when we see Jesus is there 
and there's these, this crowd, this crowd that has kind of given in to this sort of gang mob violence and abuse and put him and misused the justice system, the justice system to get him on a, on a death pole, an execution pole. And he's hanging there and there's this, this anger in this, and they're actually laughing and mocking and spitting on him as he's dying. And nowhere else, I think, could you see more clearly in the Bible the offense of humanity towards God directly. And um, it's so clear, and it's so clear who the offender is and who the offended is. And as you're seeing that grotesque picture of the grievance and the offense, Jesus' soft words are, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Um, And what Christians do, what we try to do, and what the tradition is to do in the New Testament is to not just see yourself along with all those terrible things you mentioned, idolatry, child sacrifice, and all the wayward things of humanity, but to especially see yourself in that same drama. In that same story, that story is not just a foreign story of some other group of people. That, that is your story, that you, that you are there in a sense. You, you start to see your own story as the offender in your relationship with God. I mean, with God, what do you think you are? Are you the offender or the offended? Well, most people would actually probably be honest and say, yeah, if there is such a thing as me and God in a relationship, okay, yeah, I'm probably the offender just in the fact that I don't really give much time or I just don't give it much thought or... And just know that no matter how offensive you think you've been in your relationship with God, that, that this is how the drama goes. This is how the narrative goes. That the offended, God shows us, the offended becomes the forgiver and the reconciler. And when it looks like Jesus is in a corner and there's no wiggle room, there's no play, there's nothing to work with here in terms of forgiveness because they're all offense and they're owning nothing, and out of the blue, there's wiggle room, there's play. And Jesus can say, Father, forgive them somehow. He's not cornered by the offense. And he's never cornered with your offense. Um, well, when the grieved becomes the comforter, and when the offended becomes the forgiver, we notice. On a human level, when you see this happen, people write articles about it. They write articles about um, a father who's at a funeral for his kindergartner uh, in Newtown, and which we've all been entering into the horror of that by what we've read and seen. And it comes like something foreign in the story when the, the father mentions words of comfort to the family of the killer. And I don't know about you, but my mind just kind of feels like, where'd that come from? That's odd. That's unusual. And so articles get written about that. It's odd, it's unusual, because Christians, to put it another way, refuse to settle in their relationships on a frozen narrative. We refuse to say it's frozen, it's locked in place, this is how it is. We refuse to say, because of the gospel in our lives, we refuse to say, in this relationship, I am the offended, and that is the offender. And you know how this goes. You know how it plays out is that there's somebody, there's somebody over here that you talk to about this relationship and, and what they're hearing from you is just you're finding reinforcement for how that is the offender and I'm the offended. And there's always, I mean, there's always behavior that'll reinforce that narrative and that'll keep it locked in place. I'm the one offended, that's the one offending. 
and it sort of just gets locked and frozen in place. Christians refuse to do that because what we know is that we know that the gospel dies in, our, in that part of our life when we do that. When It's like a tree blossoming with all its leaves in the spring, but this big branch in the middle is just dead and dry and brown because in the, it got too cold in the winter. And when you just lock in and freeze the relational narrative and say this is how it's going to be and you decide to remain the grieved and the offended, you're not tapping into the, the great wealth of reconciliation that you have access to through Christ. Through how Christ treated you when you're the offender. And so in Christian community, you know how we, I, I had Nathan up here and we were sharing his story, and in the Christian community, we celebrate and share and get used to the normalcy of hearing stories of people who, um, even when they're the offended, and there seems to be no play for them to initiate the reconciliation that they do. And that becomes almost a normal thing in Christian community that we expect to hear once in a while. Stories of people who, they're the offended and they take the initiative of reconciliation to switch the narrative. As I listened to a sermon this week by, uh, from an old church I used to go to and a, a mentor, preacher of mine, in the middle of the sermon his daughter gave a, a talk about her story. And I, I didn't really know what, it, what had gone on with her. She was younger when I was in Michigan, where, this is, where they are. And in her story, she gave this vivid description of sort of the ground zero of the hurt and pain in her life, which came down to um, abuse and sexual abuse by multiple men, young men on one night. So she's describing that. She's describing how this is central in her story and how she's dealt with it. And she, she goes almost literally blow by blow through what she went through. And I'm entering in, as I listen to it, I'm entering into the hurt of that because it's so vivid and it's so real. And her voice is cracking and she's intermittently crying as she tells it. And I'm getting kind of angry for what's happened to her because I'm starting to feel the offense and the grievance, which is part of the process of reconciliation. I was feeling it and I was angry and I wanted to you know, go there and do something to those guys and put them away, lock them up or worse after hearing what they put her through. And as I'm feeling the weight of the offense and how she's offended and there's an offender, then her words come over as I'm listening to this. Like from, from another planet, her words come in and she's telling this story and she gets to the point where she says, and I realized... I, need to, I needed to forgive. This is what she said. And I realized I needed to forgive the men who raped me. And I was like, what? And I, in a sense, I caught myself freezing the narrative and not believing in that process of reconciliation that could happen. Now, not, not many of us, although some... But not many of us have something maybe that deep and that cutting and that wounding in our story. Some of us do. But not all of us. Probably not the majority of you. And so if she can see that because of Christ, or as Paul puts it here when he describes how he forgives, he says in verse 9 or verse 10, um, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. 
And if this young girl across the country can look at the offense of being sexually abused by multiple people and look at it and say, I got to a point where I realized I had to forgive. If she can do that, then all of us, every single one of us, have to kind of stop and take stock in our relationships. And take stock, really, of the, the great reserves of forgiveness we have at our disposal and wonder, just be in awe and wonder of what's possible again in relationships that we've just sort of frozen and said, that's how it is. Now finally, the, the demonic. It's the third part of the mechanics of this, this passage. The demonic or the satanic. You notice in verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, I'm so glad he does this. He says, in order, he forgave in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Um, in Christian churches, a lot of times you'll hear someone say, um, you know, I think something is going on with the demonic over there. Um, or um, there's some real spiritual warfare happening over here in this thing. I don't know if you've caught, ever caught language like that in church, church life. And I think, what, I think what's going on there is that something extraordinary and sort of out of our common experience is happening. Um, and it very well may be that Satan is at work. But I want you to think about, um, I want you to think about how Satan is described in Scripture and the, the devil is described as, as really the father of lies and, the, and full of deceit and like this passage says, scheming, really. And that wouldn't you think that it would be great if the schemer could get you to believe that just in these flashy things over here and these flashy things over here, that's where Satan is doing his most uh, important work. What basically Paul is saying is that in the issue of a community who is not ready to implement forgiveness, Satan is scheming. He's working hard for that to happen. In a sense, uh, that there might be, you know, celebrations and promotions of, of young up-and-coming demons for getting a Christian or getting a person to just settle into certain habits of unforgiveness in their life. And this kind of frozen narrative, I'm offended, you're the offender, and you better start to come my way, otherwise we are nothing from here on out. Um, C.S. Lewis um, in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, which is a book about uh, these letters to Wormwood, the young protege demon, a demon mentoring another demon. It's a great look at this kind of subtle work that perhaps uh, we need to think about how Satan is working in our lives and where we don't even expect it. And in that book, he, he, talks, he gives this guy advice, this young demon advice, and one of the things is that um, to even get someone to be maybe even praying for someone else who they have a grievance with. But in their prayers, it's such that they're not at all opening the door for reconciliation. That the prayers are, I think the way the book describes it, get them to pray really lofty and high spiritual kinds of prayers. Have you ever... That can happen in small groups in churches where someone's even offering us prayer requests, pray for this person... You know, that they, you know that I just really want, want to lift them up. There's something going on there also of, but I'm not checking the, the most, if I'm saying that, I might not be checking the most 
immediate behavior in, in this relationship with him. And I'm not seeing at all my part in the, the reserves I have at which I can bring to reconcile, to forgive, and to love. It's tricky. So my hope is that if, just to, that we'd stop and we'd think, think about relationships in your life. There might be a relationship. You came here today and you have, you have a half dozen reasons why this particular relationship does not apply to what Mark is saying about reconciliation. And I want you to just consider that there's a whole set of schemes going on to get you to be very firm in that not pursuing reconciliation in that relationship and feeling completely justified and reinforced that that person's wrong, you are right, that's the end, until they do something. And instead, and to imagine all that scheming happening and then also just imagine that right there on the other side is this deep reservoir of grace at your disposal. And it's just ready to wash over and transform this relationship. Let's pray. God of grace, help us and help us to keep learning about these things throughout these weeks. May you change relationships that we have uh, through the power of the forgiveness you first showed us. May we believe that it's true that you are the loving Father running to embrace us, to reconcile, to keep us close. May we think thoughts this week and this day based on that truth. May we feel emotionally, deeply that that's true, and may we act in our relationships as if that is true. In Christ's name, amen.